Good morning. Our key scripture this morning comes from the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn over there. I'll be reading this passage for you here this morning. From 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not perceive those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so, we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Are you looking forward to the return of Jesus? Now, I promise that's not a trick question. We all know that the correct answer is, of course, yes. But it is a question I want us to pay a little bit of attention to this morning. What does it mean to you when you say that you are looking forward to the return of Jesus? Are you ready for this life to end? Are you ready to move on to the life, the home that God has prepared for you? Are you ready to put aside all that you know in this place and leave it behind, never looking back? Now, I think for most of us, on one level, the answer, of course, is yes. And yet, I sort of wonder if Jesus walked in the back of this auditorium and said, okay, it's time, what we would say. Would we tell him to wait? Would we tell him maybe later? Would we say, you can't be Jesus? What would we say to him were he to come through those doors? As Christians, we are called to live our lives for God. This is true. But we are also called to live as if this world is not our ultimate reality. As though... We are, as Paul puts it, in a tent while we wait to go home. That this place is not all that there is. But here is the challenge. Paul, when he wrote to all of these different churches so long ago, he expected that Jesus would show up any time, any moment, any day. And yet here we are, 2,000 years later, And Jesus still has not come back. And here's what I think that has done to us. I think that we love the concept of Jesus returning and all that it entails. But I do not think that we live in anticipation for his return. I don't think we live as if we think this is something that will happen in our lifetime. Because, church, there is a difference between living like you expect Jesus to come back now 
and living like you don't know if he will come back in your lifetime. Many of us in this room had very uh, different experiences throughout the wildfires that came through. And uh, my experience was one where I found a whole bunch of people at my house on Sunday night. And some of those, one family in particular, as you know, uh, Mike and Julie Ray lost their home. But the rest of us that were there lived in this weird place over the next week of is our home going to be gone or not? And Nisha and I, we were faced with a choice. We had to look at what was going on and decide whether we were going to stay in our home. Now, if we believed that the fire was going to come over through Annandale, over the back of that hill and down to our house, then there were things that we needed to do. We needed to pack and we needed to leave. But if we didn't think that was going to happen, we could have just stayed in the house and hoped for the best. We packed. And we left. Because as all of you who lived through that remember, because it wasn't very long ago, we didn't know what was going to happen. And the only thing we were sure of is that at any moment, our fortune could change and our home could be gone too. If you believe the fire is coming over the back of the hill, you act like it. If we believe that Jesus is coming any time, then we act like it because there is a difference between saying that we believe Jesus is coming followed by us doing nothing and our saying that we believe Jesus is coming and us packing up our things and being ready. Ready to go. This morning as we explore the world that Jesus stepped into the first time he was here, there is a question that we who are so far away from that place still have to answer. Do we believe that Jesus is returning? Do we believe that it could happen any time? And are we living as those who are ready to leave this place? Well, I hope you all had a very nice Thanksgiving. Um, you weren't in Fresno, so it wasn't as nice as mine. But I'm sure it was still good. Um, or as uh, Zula likes to call it, it's not Fresno. It's Fres yes. So uh, that's right. Going to the yes. Uh, so. Next week, we are going to enter the season of Advent, uh, where we both look back to the birth of Jesus and look forward to his return. Uh, but this week, we are going to focus on um, the time that Jesus actually did come and what was happening in the world and everything that was going on. Now, have you ever thought that you knew a story really well only to find out that the actual story was not the story you knew at all? Can any of you relate to that particular situation? Let me, let me just give you an example uh, as we get started here today. Uh, with this picture, you all probably know what movie this is from. Well, I know I put a scantily clad mermaid up there. I apologize. Please forgive me. Uh, this is from The Little Mermaid, right? One of uh, Disney's most beloved movies, under the Sea, Dinglehoppers, Snarflats, all those different sorts of things. It's a great movie. And so you know the story, I think, of The Little Mermaid, which is Ariel fell in love with the prince whose name was Eric, Eric Prince Eric. Um, 
and she really, really wanted to go spend time with Prince Eric. Uh, so she made a deal with a sea witch whose name is Ursula. Ursula. I'm hearing a lot of female voices this morning. Um, and, and the sea witch makes a deal with Ariel that she can go up and walk on land uh, and, and be there with Eric, but she has to lose her voice. So um, she goes up and she's, she's living uh, up there and, you know, her fish friends are helping her woo uh, Eric, if you will, even though she can't speak. Uh, but then Ursula, the sea witch, which in this case is, is a really bad thing, becomes a woman herself and goes up and, and lives on land and uh, sort of uses her sea witchy magic to um, take control of Eric. And so Eric is now going to marry the sea witch and Ariel is be- going to become one of those weird little guppy creatures that they had that were attached to the ocean floor. This is what she was going to become. And so, uh, but in the end... Right? Um, everything turns out okay. And uh, she breaks the spell of the sea witch, and Eric rams a ship into Ursula, and Ursula dies. And then uh, King Triton makes Ariel uh, a, a woman with two legs, and she can go up on land. And everything just works out so great. And that is the story of the Little Mermaid, right? Wrong! That is not the story of the Little Mermaid. That is this story, but it's not this story. Uh, Here is the real story of the Little Mermaid. Not that the Little Mermaid was real, but you you follow me here, right? Um, So Ariel, or the Little Mermaid, falls in love with the prince, and she saved his life when he was wrecked at sea. So she put him on the shore next to a church where a group of young nuns were able to take care of this prince. Um, So she decides that she wants to be human, so she goes to the sea witch, and the sea witch actually cuts out her tongue so that she can neither speak nor sing. So there's no little like green fuzz that goes into the seashell. Um, And so she becomes, she becomes this woman, and she has these legs, but every time she took a step on her new legs, it hurt so badly, it felt like she was walking on knives. Um, and the only way she could survive up on land was if she married the prince. However, if the prince married someone else, then she would turn into sea foam by the following morning. Yeah, this story is already much, much darker than, than we would like. But here's the problem. The prince had already fallen in love with someone else by the time the little mermaid gets up on land. And he, in fact, fell in love with the young nun who helped nurse him back to health. He could not marry her, so, that he, so he thought that he would marry the little mermaid instead. His parents sent him off to meet the daughter of a foreign king, and wouldn't you know, the daughter of the foreign king was none other than the nun who had nursed him back to health. And so the prince decides to marry this nun who was secretly a princess. Are you with me? Complicated, I know, complicated. So, but it doesn't stop there. So, the little mermaid sisters make a deal with the sea witch, and in exchange for their hair, they got a knife. If the little mermaid killed the prince with the knife, and let his blood go onto her feet, 
they would turn into a tail again and she could return home. So she goes to the tent after the prince marries the nun slash princess. Goes to the tent, sneaks in there to kill him, but she can't do it. So she walks out into the ocean and she becomes sea foam. The end. Well, that's a much different story, isn't it? Right? That Hans Christian Andersen has a way with things, with story, with narrative. Sometimes I think we approach the story of Jesus, and particularly around this time of year, as if we know the story, as if there is sort of nothing new that it holds for us, as if we understand everything that was going on at the time. We approach the story accepting it at face value and we wonder in particular, and this is something that that we've talked about before, but as we read the story of Jesus, we wonder how it is that people who met Jesus didn't just follow him and worship him. Like, didn't they understand how wonderful he was? Didn't they see all the good things that he was doing? Didn't they know? And so we, we end up looking at these people that were around Jesus and that didn't choose him either as stupid or as too prideful or as they have some flaw that kept them from seeing Jesus. And we think that if we were there, we would have been one of those people to follow Jesus. Maybe that's true. But we will be looking at the story of Jesus, but like any good story, before we get there next week, a story takes place in a particular time and place and setting. And the story of Jesus does the same thing. It takes place at a particular time with a particular people who were experiencing particular things. So the context of the story of Jesus is really important. The context of this world that he came into So, that's what we're going to look at a little bit this morning. So first, what is the context for the story of Jesus? Well, we want to look at the big picture, okay? So we're going to back up way, 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 way back before we just launch in to where Jesus was. Um, And we want to ask ourselves, first of all, what is the spiritual context of the story? What is going on in terms of how God sees the world and, and why does God make the decision that he makes to send Jesus at the time that he does? So we're going to back way back up to, let's just say, the beginning. Okay? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay? And God created man and had a special relationship with his creation. He provided everything that man needed, and there was nothing that they lacked. And Adam and Eve lived in the perfect place, in the perfect relationship with God. However, the serpent showed up and offered Adam and Eve the opportunity to have the one thing that the serpent said they didn't have. He said, you can be like God. If you eat from the tree, you will know good and evil, and you can be like God. You can have his same power. And so they rejected God, displaying our tendency to rebel against our loving creator. In the very first story that we have of people, they choose to rebel against God. 
the man and woman were kicked out of the garden and the relationship between man and God was forever changed. So God, from that point, tries to rebuild the relationship with man, but was ultimately unsuccessful. And I've shared this with you a couple times. It's one of the things that just, it shocks me every time I look at it or realize it. And that's this. By Genesis chapter 6, okay, by Genesis chapter 6, man has grown so far away from God that God is ready to just clean the slate. Think about that for a second. Within six chapters of creation, man has moved so far away from God that God says, I just need to start all over again because this is not working. And so he sends the flood and starts over with Noah even though it broke his heart. Several generations later, he finds man at the Tower of Babel and man has repopulated the earth and they all get together and they start talking about how great they are and they decide they're going to build a tower. And what is the reason why they're going to build this tower? It is going to reach who? God. And then they can be on the same level as God. God looks down and sees this and is God threatened by them? No, but he understands that he has to do something, and so he confused their language so they had to spread across the earth. God starts over again in Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham. And, and God's desires at this point, while they were at sort of their core, the same as they always had been, God is using a new model. So he starts Adam and Eve and he wants to be their God. He wants them to be his people, and it falls apart. So he starts over with Noah, and he wants all of mankind to be his people, but it falls apart. So this time, he doesn't try to make everyone on earth like him and be his people, and he to be their God. Instead, he decides that he will start over with Abraham. And with Abraham, his, his ambition was a lot, I guess you could say, more modest, I'm going to start with this one family. And if I bless this family apart from everyone else, then they will stick with me. They will be my people. I will be their God. I will raise them up into a nation. So he began to build this one family into a nation, a nation where God would be king and his people would listen to him. And if you know the story, well, the people of Abraham, Abraham's descendants, they end up in the land of Egypt under favorable conditions, which quickly turned less favorable. As they grew and they prospered, the nation of Egypt looked at them and decided that they needed to become slaves before they became too powerful and took power from Egypt. So they quickly become slaves and, become, and spend generations in Egypt as slaves. So God hears the cries of his people and what does he do for them? He, he delivers them. He brings them out of slavery and he's going to take them to the land that he has promised them where they will be his people and he will be their God. And he went through this long process, right, of establishing that he will be God for them. And he has to farm out a generation of people that don't believe in him. And he's going to raise up this new generation under Joshua. And they're going to be his people. And they go into the land. And as they go into the land, some of them listen to him and some of them don't. But eventually, the nation of Israel 
becomes this place in this land and they will be gods. But once they get into the land and they decide, they look around themselves, they've beaten all these foreign nations, they see the other nations around them and they say, hey, you know, these other nations, they have kings. Well, we want a king too. And the prophet Samuel says, well, God is your king. They're like, no, 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 no. We want like a king, like someone here to be our king and to lead us. And so they, they decide they want to be just like everyone else and have this king. So they started a long process where the people of God struggled with wanting to be like everyone else to rule themselves while still being under the control of God. And they choose their own king, who is the biggest, strongest, most handsome man they can find. He is the victor. He is the one. And it turns out he is a terrible king. But then David comes, and David makes them a powerful nation, and they are respected and honored all over the earth. But eventually things start to break down as they rule themselves. Eventually the the nation of Israel is torn into two different nations. You had Israel and you had Judah, and, and the north falls under the power of foreign armies, and then eventually the south falls under the, the power of foreign armies. People were taken away into exile. And they lived in these other countries, they intermarried with these people, and as the people of God, they became less and less distinct from anyone around them. Until, as Randy mentioned last week, in the time of, of Ezra and Nehemiah, they come back to Jerusalem. And some fascinating things happen. Under Ezra, they discover the scriptures again. And by reading the scriptures, they see who they are supposed to be. And they start to rebuild their identity. Nehemiah comes back and they build the wall around Jerusalem. And they're starting to remake themselves as a people. And the problem, though is that even though they are rebuilding their walls, and even though they are establishing themselves again as a people, they are not in charge of themselves anymore. From the moment they were taken into captivity, from the moment the north and then the south fell, they never ruled themselves again. It just, it didn't happen. So this is the spiritual context of the story. This is the, in five minutes, the history of Israel up to the point where Jesus comes. And here are, here's the situation that you have. They want to be the people of God. God wants to be their king. But they have also shown that we really want to have our own king. We really want to rule ourselves. And so this played out, this particular thing, this particular issue of God's going to be king, no, we're going to have our own king, played out in an extremely messy way when Jesus was born here. So, let's talk about the specific historical context of Jesus. What was going on in the world when Jesus was born, not just in Israel? So, here's something that you need to understand about the world uh, when Jesus was born, and it's not very unlike our world today, actually, but the world was in great conflict at the time that Jesus was born. Uh, it started out, uh, well, it didn't necessarily start out, but 
Uh, it started out with Alexander the Great, who decided he was going to conquer as much of the world as he could. Okay? And he conquered the world, and after he died, this was his empire, after he died, um, the empire was split up amongst all of his generals, and they were supposed to keep the empire together and just rule different areas of it. But the problem was, these generals who had inherited their power began to have conflict with each other over their own dynasties. And so they started fighting with one another. Now, from roughly 323 to 223 BC, the dynasties uh, from Egypt generally dominated the area. So as these other dynasties broke apart, Egypt stepped into the hole. And the, the high priests negotiated agreements so that they could maintain their power within the nation itself. But then, around 200 BC, uh, this guy, Antiochus III, he's a handsome devil, he was in control of a nation called Syria. So Syria defeated the Egyptian forces and gained control of the whole region. So now Israel, which had made a deal with Egypt to keep their own sort of thing going on, now has to deal with Antiochus III. And at first things, things went well, but then the Syrian forces were defeated by another force, by Rome. And they, were, and they were charged a really heavy penalty. So in order to pay the penalty to Rome, they turned on their own territories and charged greater taxes to raise money. And in order to get enough money to pay Rome, they ended up going in and plundering the temple and taking all of the riches that they could out of the nation of Israel. Under Antiochus IV, the son of Antiochus III, the high priests were constantly switched out to keep them under control of the Syrian nation. And he punished any rebellion by attacking uh, Jerusalem itself, both in 169 and 167 BC. During that time, the population was slaughtered, the temple was plundered, and a statue to Zeus was put in the place of God in the temple. There was a revolt, which included a victory in 164, and that led to... Uh, the rededication of the temple and the celebration of, anyone know? Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Exactly. Rome now is in charge. And Rome eventually, and this is their dynasty at that time, Rome eventually recognized that um, the Jews were a nation and gave them conditional independence. Which means that Rome let them have their own leaders, let them have their own uh, high priests, let them do all of their own thing within uh, the nation of Israel. They just had to make sure that all of those leaders understood Rome was still in charge and they had to pay taxes to Rome. It was actually a really great strategy by the Roman leaders. So instead of going in somewhere and just wiping them out and saying, we're in charge now, you actually let the people have some of their own stuff. You let them have sort of the illusion of being in charge. And therefore, theoretically, they'll stay more happy. You'll get your taxes, and technically you'll still own the earth. All right? So this was kind of the strategy that they had. So <clears throat> the high priest took the title of king, and wars raged, and there was much unrest. And finally, Rome entered the city of Jerusalem in 63 BC and essentially took control of the land, though they allowed some in power to stay in power underneath them. And this led to the kingship of one particularly kooky man named Herod. 
Now, the, Herod's father had risen to power as a local governor for the Romans in the area. And so Herod became, uh, Herod the Great, he was later called, became governor of Galilee in 47 BC. And he was a very powerful man. And one of the things that Herod the Great did was he took on a lot of building projects. Um, and that's how he was really going to make a name for himself, was by rebuilding these areas in Israel that had been torn down. And so uh, he made the Antonia Fortress, which looks something like this, uh, in the city of Jerusalem itself. Uh, he built up Caesarea Maritime, so it was a huge port. I mean, think about the time of Jesus having something, you know, with aqueducts and lighthouses and all those crazy stuff, right? It's a pretty, that's a significant that's a significant structure and building project right there. And the third thing he did was he rebuilt the temple, which this last phase of the temple was actually called Herod's Temple, um, which was different from Saul, on the same space, but greatly transformed from what Solomon originally built. Uh, it was expanded and made a huge, huge uh, structure. But... As you have probably picked up, Herod's reign didn't go so well because within this kind of culture where there's a new emperor always trying to get power over things, Herod's reign was a troubled one. And particularly from the year 14 BC to 4 BC, it was characterized by a great deal of trouble. So at one point, his own son, who was the sole heir tried to poison Herod so that he could become king. But his plans went a little awry, and Herod's brother drank the poison, died in front of them all, and then um, his Herod's son was thrown into jail and later executed by his father with permission from Rome. Uh, he was also, Herod was also basically crazy, uh, towards the end of his reign. Through all of this, and I mean, I can imagine if my son was trying to poison me, I would become a little bit paranoid as well. He became extremely paranoid, and he was nervous about any competition. And so therefore, when these wise men come and say, we have seen a sign in the stars, and it says that a new king is coming, Herod reacts in a very subtle, underplayed way, Right? where he orders an entire generation of children to be killed so that he will have no competition as heir. In the meantime, there's a lot happening, right? I'm throwing so much information at you, it's unfair, um, but sometimes I don't care about fairness. <laughs> In the meantime, the Jewish people had their own power struggle going on. Um, the Jewish people were... Um, they became torn between two different groups. And those groups were, who knows, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Okay? And here's basically the breakdown of it. The Sadducees were a group comprised of the wealthy and influential from the nation of Israel. Uh, this included the high priest, and the Sadducees controlled the temple, the Sanhedrin, and in many ways, their concern was they wanted to keep their own sphere of influence within the nation of Israel under Rome. And so for a couple of generations now, by the time Jesus comes, the Sadducees had done everything they could to keep the ruling powers happy 
So they are enforcing the collection of taxes. They are making sure that no one rises up in rebellion against Rome. They are keeping the people in line so that they don't lose their position at the top of the Jewish heap. And then you have this other group called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, they were the teachers of the law. And so their job was to protect the law and make sure that people were following it in the right kind of way. As much as we have villainized the Pharisees over time uh, as the enemies of Jesus, one thing you need to understand about them is this. They exist as a response to the Sadducees selling out their people. And the Pharisees rose up because they said, just paying Rome is not who we are. And so they went back to the scripture. They went back to the word. And they said, if we are going to be the people of God, we have to follow the law of God. And so they followed the law of God. They protected the law of God. They did everything they could to encourage people to live this kind of life because their way of following God was so different than what the Sadducees were doing in trying to just make other powers happy. Okay, so what does all this tell us? It tells us that Jesus was born into a mess, right? Jesus was born into a mess. Worldwide, politically, culturally, spiritually, religiously, Everything was a mess. And maybe you've seen a common thread, which is everyone wants to be in control of someone. Everyone wants to be in control of someone. Right? Rome wants to be in control of the world. The Sadducees want to cover their own little area of Israel. Herod wants to rule as a king, even though he's not really a king. The Pharisees are wanting to keep those who actually want to follow the law of God in control. And you have these things constantly circling and fighting against one another. So not only has man rejected the kingship of God, they are also constantly at at war with one another over who is going to be in control and who is going to be king. And it was a messy world that Jesus entered. But here's the other thing you have to understand. It was not only a messy world that Jesus entered, but it was a world that was not ready for him. It was a world that was not ready for him. Because what have we just seen? Oh, there's a new king in town. Great. You have the disenfranchised at the bottom who are going to hear that there's a new king. And what are they going to think about this king? He's going to be like everybody else. Right? And then you have those that are in power. You have the Pharisees who want this king to walk their line of what they think this should look like in terms of living a life for God. You have the Sadducees who want to make sure that they maintain power. You have Rome that just doesn't want there to be a revolt because that's just messy and they have to send soldiers and blah, 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 blah. You have all these things going on. This is the situation that Jesus steps into. So now we look back at this mess, at this ugly casserole of humanness, right? And God wants to change the world through Jesus. He wants to change the world through Jesus. But what God was planning was going to cause problems, because I want you to hear this. There is no way that Jesus could have walked into that world and not created problems. There's just no way for that to happen. 
There was too much going on. And if Jesus is going to step in this world where man is constantly fighting against one another to be king and to be God, there is no way that Jesus could walk in and be God in that place and not make people angry about it. This is the world that he entered. And we act shocked, perhaps, that look at the star. Look at the angels. Look at the miracles. Listen to his teaching. Listen to what he says about God. We are so shocked that it didn't turn out better than it did. But Jesus wasn't. Jesus knew he was going to be a problem. From Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 34. Do not suppose, Jesus says, that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. What is Jesus saying? He understood that he was going to cause trouble. If you were to hear the teachings of Jesus, if you were to follow him, think about what that meant for you. Think about the disciples who were called to leave everything behind and did, who left their families, who left their parents, who left, if they had, why, who left all these situations and left them behind to follow Jesus. Do you think the families were happy about that? No. They were not happy about these things. He understood, Jesus did, that he was going to cause trouble, that there were so many kings on so many thrones. Even within the family itself, there was a structure that was expected to be upheld, and Jesus called people out of that structure to serve no one but God. And he knew that the saving work of God in Jesus was going to tear things apart. There's more evidence of this from Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Okay. So we wonder how people didn't respond positively to Jesus. And we, we look at these people and we say, well, it's because they were power hungry, it's because they were this, it's because they were that. Jesus' own family tried to take him back as the crazy brother who was doing weird things. There's a question that comes to my mind. How is that possible? That Jesus' own family did not understand who he was. I mean, hello? His mom got pregnant by the Holy Spirit. That would seem to be something that would cement the deal for the family, you would think. But for some reason, this doesn't happen. His family has heard about the things that are going on. His schedule is so demanding that he doesn't have even time to eat. Plus, people say that he is out of his mind, that he's some sort of religious fanatic. So his family decides, you know what we need to do? We need to take care of this Jesus. All right? They decide they're going to go and take charge of him. And the word that is used there is a word that is used uh, in other contexts for making an arrest. 
They were actually going to go and take him physically from this place and bring him home until he came to his senses again. In the meantime, something else comes up. In verse 22, And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. I love Jesus so much. And these people are coming and saying that like he's possessed by Satan. And so what does Jesus do? You think I'm possessed by Satan? Let me tell you a story, right? So Jesus called them over and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Jesus is relentlessly logical. He really is. And so this group of religious leaders, they've long accused Jesus of being demon-possessed. It was the way that they explain how he's able to do all these things. It's not the power of God, it's the power of Satan that is working through him. And so they came before him at this time, and the argument was that Jesus was able to drive out demons because he had the power of Satan himself, and so he can command the demons to go. Basically, they were saying that by the power of Satan, he was driving out Satan. So Jesus points out sort of the absurdity of this argument. So wait a second. What you're saying is that as the agent of Satan, I am removing demons from the world. And I am making Satan less powerful in the world by removing these demons. And um, I'm doing this all somehow under Satan's command. And what is his point? That makes... No sense at all. If you argue that I'm doing this under the power of Satan, all I am doing is weakening Satan's hold on the earth. And a house divided will not stand. If everyone is fighting against themselves, the house will not be stronger. The house will be more weak. And here's what is so interesting about that argument. It's that Jesus is right, but he's right in more ways than one. Think about the situation he's in again. His family has just shown up to arrest him and take him home. The religious leaders also show up and they say, you're doing this under the power of Satan. And Jesus steps back and he makes this comment. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Because within this very room, where Jesus stands, there are no less than three parties vying for power within that very room. No less than three people, three parties trying to take control of the situation. And Jesus looks and he speaks to them about Satan. But he speaks a truth that we cannot ignore. Jesus as Savior is necessary because the people of God we're away from God and they are divided against each other and his 
next comments display the truth of this. Jesus turned the argument around them and said, I am doing these things through the power of God and you are trying to stop me. And the sin that cannot be forgiven is this defiant hostility against God and what God is doing. Picking up in verse 33. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrive. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. It's important to note something here. Jesus is not saying his family doesn't matter. That's not his message. Um, He's not saying the people outside are not really his mother and brothers. He knows who they are. But Jesus chooses to highlight one thing. One thing. The one thing that he wants his life on earth to be about. That one thing is this. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister. Everyone else is trying to seize control for themselves. And Jesus is trying to do one thing. He is trying to put God back on the throne as king. Not himself, but God. He is trying to put God back in his place. I think that sometimes in knowing the story of Jesus and knowing about his birth and knowing about all these things, it is so easy to be removed from it. To stand back and say, how could they not know? How could they, if I was there, I would believe. And you know what? I sure hope that we would, but I'm not sold on it. I'm not. That if Jesus walked through those doors, we would be thrilled to see him. Because all of this displays one very, very true thing about us. We want control. We want control. Whatever it is, we will grasp to control even if our areas of influence keep shrinking smaller and smaller and smaller. We will grasp with both hands to that last one. We want control. And we are reluctant at best to let God be God and to say, God, you will lead me. I will be who you want me to be. But like our game of war, the irony is Jesus is not trying to control everyone. Jesus is trying to love everyone. So that by knowing the love of God, they can become heirs of the kingdom of God so that they can inherit all that God has to offer. The King of Kings, the Prince of Peace, is here for other people and not himself. So while the world continues to play war, to have the highest card, 
to wear the crown. Jesus steps into that place and says, God loves you. And God wants all of you to be his children. And you know what's really sad? The world wasn't ready for that. They didn't want to hear it. They didn't understand. Because they couldn't give up control. That sounds a lot like today. It sounds a lot like the world we live in where people are standing on opposite ends of the globe and threatening each other with missiles. And... But what it does tell us is that today, now, more than ever, people need to hear the same thing. That God loves them. That he wants to make their life something better. And that by being in relationship with God, you don't lose who you are. You gain eternity. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your son, Jesus. We are sorry that our world is so messy, so broken apart. God, we struggle for control in so many ways. And Father, we see in this story of the time that Jesus came, how we struggle against you. Father, will you help us to believe that you love us and that you are not looking to control us, Father, but to bless us. And Father, may we desire to make you king over this place, over our next moment, our next decision, over all things that make us who we are. For God, we want to be brothers and sisters of Jesus. We want to do the will of the God who loves us. We thank you for Jesus sacrificing himself. We thank you for the fact that he is revolutionary because this world needs to change. And we ask that you would help us to be his voice here in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have any needs for prayers or encouragement, you want to know this God who loves you, you want to give up even a little bit of control this morning, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.